Good morning. This morning's scripture reading will be taken from Jeremiah 9, verses 23 through 26. And it begins, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boast, boast in this, that he understand and know me, that I am the Lord, who practice steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declare the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised, merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judea, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their ear, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in art. Here ends the reason of God's word. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you all today. I wanted to start out with a, a famous quote. From Mark Twain, he once said that the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. (laughs) I like that. You know, it's a great quote for life. And as Christians, I think it's very important for us also from a spiritual perspective, too. You know, we focus a lot on when we were born. We had some announcements about that this morning, right? Physical birth, spiritual birth. But have we given much thought to the why question? You know, this month we're diving into what we believe about salvation, and today I want to explore the why question. Why did God save us? What was the purpose of that exactly? What were we actually saved for? It's important to understand this because knowing the reason why something happens or has happened brings so much in terms of kind of clarity, focus, direction. The why question is right at the foundation of it. It's, it's at the root. It brings clarity to everything else, the what and the how and the when. In our reading today, uh, the prophet Jeremiah was sharing a message from God to the Jewish people because they had seriously forgotten who they were. God, he had brought them into the promised land and, and into a nation where they could be his people But it seems that they had sort of forgotten why God had done all that. And as I was reflecting on this, you know, it really shook me because I realized that the same thing, this very same thing can still happen to you and me today. We need to know not just how we are saved, but why we've been saved, what we've been saved for, which is the title of our lesson today. God has saved us for a purpose. And I I want to point out three things from Jeremiah 9 that God has saved us for. And of course, the goal of all of this is is to get us to embrace this new life that God has given us. We have been saved for a new purpose. We've been saved for a new relationship. And we've been saved for a new ego. So let's uh, let's start with this first one and how we've been saved for a new purpose. In our scripture reading today, 
uh, it points out that God saved us for a higher purpose. And it's really not that complicated in some ways. The purpose is to bear his image, which is something that we've talked about several times already in our sermon series this year. God uh, describes himself here as, as someone who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness. It says that he takes delight in these things, which means that he also wants his people to go about practicing the same qualities in their life so that we can reflect him. This has been his goal right from the beginning. And, and we know this, of course, we, we know it, right? But sin has a way of messing these things up. We see this highlighted in Romans 6 when Paul's talking about, about the past life of sin. He says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Sin devastates, period. That's sort of what it does. And when we pursue uh, sinful things, there's really no future in that life. Uh, Verse 21 here says that those pursuits end in death. In death. But God has saved us for a different purpose. He has shown us a way to life instead. We've been saved, saved to walk in the path that leads to life. We now have a new purpose. And uh, going back to our scripture uh, from from Jeremiah, we can see here that uh, here that he expects us to pursue these qualities that are found in him since he is the source of this new life. He's the source of it. He's the one who saved it for us. We can pursue love and justice and righteousness just like he does. This is our new purpose because when we pursue these things, instead of walking the path that leads to death, we reflect his image to the world around us. We've been saved for this purpose. In some ways, I think it's kind of like saving money. You know, when we earn some money, we can choose to spend it, right, or save it. Some of us are sort of inclined to be one or the other. But the reason you would save your money is because you want to hold it back for a higher purpose, right? You have something better in mind. Instead of spending it on uh, DoorDash or Double Doubles or whatever at the mall, uh, you, you save it. You hold it back. You want to make sure it's not wasted on a lesser purpose so you can save it for a higher purpose. And it's the same thing with the reason that God has saved us. He saw us wasting our lives on something of lesser value, and he wanted to save us from that so we could be used for some purpose that is higher and greater, a purpose of representing him to the world around us. And he wants us to partner with him in that, to see the value in that life. He wants to save us from the other way of life. He wants us to bear his image. We've been saved for that. Many of us already know about this, I think, but our bigger struggle is trying to live it out, right? How do we motivate ourselves to strive for this new purpose? I think a a big part of it comes from reflecting on Jesus, on his life and, and what he's done for us. 
uh, I'm getting this from what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3. Um, he, he talked about this idea. He says, not that I've already obtained all this or that I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Paul says that he was straining towards something. Uh, He was straining towards this new purpose, this new life that God had given him. But where did his motivation for that come from? Well, I think it's it's there in verse 12. It shows us, uh, and I love the language here, it says that he is pressing on to take hold of that for uh, for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. It's like he realized how much Jesus wanted him, and how important that was to Christ, and he realized the incredible Christ, uh, the incredible price that Christ had paid to have him, and that motivated him to strive for that same thing as well. If Jesus gave up so much for my salvation, it must be worth it, and I want to work for that too. I, I think that's kind of the gist of what Paul is saying here. Jesus' zeal for Paul was the motivation for Paul's zeal for Jesus. And I think that this can really be our motivation too. Uh, This is a powerful thing, tapping into the motivation of someone else. And as many of you know, uh, a small group of us from Central, we just got back from the Mexico mission trip. Uh, We were building a school there for a low-income area where many kids they don't have a, a very good access to education. And they have a hard time finding that. And um, I have a picture here. This is what we ended up building in five days, which was really amazing. Um, for me, it was, it was very motivating to work alongside uh, members of the church family here, as well as other Christians around, along, um, along Canada and the United States. And maybe you've had this experience before, uh, maybe it doesn't have to be on a mission trip, but, but sort of anything where you have a group of people working together with a common goal in mind. Their motivation for the goal becomes your motivation too. You know, there was times on the trip when I felt frustrated or tired or something, but it didn't really last long because I was surrounded by people who seriously were committed to completing this task and and when I looked at them striving for it, I couldn't help but get motivated alongside them. Have you ever experienced this? Their desire and their sacrifice was a tremendous motivator for me. And I think that's what Paul is referring to here. Something like that. You know, he, when he sees Jesus and all that Jesus is doing to take hold of Paul's life and transform it for the purpose that God had intended, he can't help but get motivated for the same thing as well. He wants to see it happen in his own life. And I I think that's where you and I can become motivated too. That's where it can become personal for us. We really need to see what Jesus did for us in a personal way. You and me have been saved for a new purpose. A higher purpose of showing the world what God is really like. Sometimes we're going to get tired and frustrated by that. And we won't feel like doing it. But in those times, we need to remember the motivation of Jesus Christ and all that he did to take hold of our lives for that purpose. 
We've been saved for a new purpose, but we've also been saved for a new relationship. God is looking for more than just a group of people who are sort of grinding away at reflecting Him, um, of imaging Him. He doesn't want just our actions. He wants our hearts as well. This has always been His desire right from the beginning. And we see this come up as well in our text this morning. The prophet Jeremiah was speaking, as we said, to God's people in a very kind of uh, dark time. God's people, they were living in a time where they were leading up to their exile into Babylon. It was a dark time in the history of God's people because they'd sort of forgotten their identity. They'd forgotten about their relationship with God. God says that the days are coming when he was going to punish them for this. And this is referring to the exile that was about to happen when Babylon would come in and take them away. But the reason that he said he was going to punish them is really because of this issue here in verse 25. He says that they were merely circumcised in their flesh. He also says in verse 26 that they were uncircumcised in heart. We're sort of removed from the circumcision concept today, I think. But it was very important for God's people during the time that this was written. Uh, Back then, it was supposed to be a sign of the covenant that was made between God and his people. It was a, a sign of this agreement or a contract, if you like, that they had made together. It was a sign of their commitment to each other, a sign of their loyalty to each other. It was very, very important. But God is pointing out that the Jewish people are basically just putting on a show. Yeah, they might be circumcised in their flesh, but really that's all it was. They were doing well to make it look like they cared about this relationship, this covenant on the outside. But in their hearts, on the inside, you know, they were far from God, really. Their hearts were not circumcised. Maybe they performed the right animal sacrifices. Maybe they dressed the right way. They said the right things at the right time in the right places. It looked like they were committed. But really, their hearts were not for Him. They were not committed to Him. And God saw all of that, of course, and He calls them out on it. And I know it's easy for us to point fingers at the Jewish people from of old and and say, you know, wow, that's awful what they did there. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, is we can still do the very same thing today. We can still make it look on the outside like we're very committed to God, but have a whole, a whole different thing going on inside of our heart. And I think one of the ways we can do this is when we reduce our faith to a checklist or steps in a process. To the extent that we forget about our relationship with God. Did we follow the right steps of salvation? Check. Did we show up to worship service on Sunday morning? Check. Did we do our weekly Bible reading? Check. You know, and I could go on and on. Not that there's anything wrong with any of that stuff. And in fact, it's very important. But the problem with reducing our faith to a checklist is that we take the heart out of it. But if, if you need, but you need to stop and consider this question we're thinking about this morning. Why? Why did God save you and I in the first place? If you have been saved from separation from God, it means that you were saved for 
a connection with God. He wants your heart. He wants a circumcised heart. He still does. A heart that is dedicated to Him. When we were on our way home from Mexico, I, I noticed this rock in one of the flower beds in a park we were at. It was beautifully painted. and uh, had a message on there, which you, you might not be able to read, uh, but I'll read it out. It's, it's entitled, the, the ABCs of Salvation. And it's an acrostic of sorts. The A stands for admit that you're a sinner and repent. B stands for believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again. And C stands for confess out loud. Jesus is my Lord. Now, I don't really have anything against this rock. It's good to try and remember what Jesus has done for us and how we should respond to that, right? And all of these things written here, I mean, they're, they're concepts from the Bible. Hard to argue. But we talk about these things sometimes in, in, in the way of a checklist. You know, we have we talk about the five steps of salvation sometimes, which is a similar concept of pulling together a lot of the things from Scripture and what it says about being saved. And we put it in a checklist or we put it in a process of sorts. And and these things can be helpful. You know, they can be helpful as learning tools. But there's also a danger in that that we'll miss the point of why we're being saved. We might unknowingly communicate to ourselves or to others that God is sort of like a vending machine or something where we put in the right things and out pops salvation. But I think there's a misunderstanding in this of what salvation is all about. If we're seeing salvation as an item that we get rather than a relationship with the God who made us, then I think we've missed the point altogether. Do you desire God or you just desire his stuff? Are these steps of salvation an end of the, an, an, an end in themselves? Or do you see, or do you see them as a process of pursuing God? Pursuing that relationship with Him? We are called to the higher purpose of having a relationship with God. And, and pursuing that is what we do when we're being baptized. What we do when we're confessing. What we do when we're repenting of sin. We're coming for Him. Our hearts are for Him. That's why we repent. Because we want to pursue that relationship. God wanted His people not just to be circumcised in their flesh, but to be circumcised in their hearts as well. Because He wanted back then, and He still wants today, the hearts of His people. This is why the Apostle Paul said in Romans 2, starting in verse 28, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. I think we could probably substitute a, a few words in here just, just to have the same gist of it in our own context. We could substitute the word Jew for Christian. We could substitute circumcision for any of the things we've been talking about, maybe baptism, church attendance, uh, confessing our faith, or we could go on and on, right? A person is not a Christian who is one merely outwardly, nor is confessing your faith merely an outward thing, a physical thing. It's a matter of the heart, a matter of the heart. It's something that not only we do outwardly, but we also desire and commit towards inwardly. We desire that relationship. We commit to that. 
That's what we've been saved for. I want, to, I want you to picture something in your mind for a minute. You can close your eyes if you want to, just don't fall asleep. <laughs> uh, picture a romantic dinner, okay? Maybe you want to imagine yourself at that dinner, or maybe it's just dinner between two strangers that you don't know. It doesn't really matter. Now, think about the instructions that you would have to give someone in order to recreate the image in your mind in real life. Like if they were to build what you had in your mind. You might describe the elements. You know, you need a patio maybe, uh, some candlelight. Maybe you need uh, a table, some chairs, maybe some music. Of course, you need some good food, right? But if you were to make a, a list, say a checklist of all those things and hand it to someone to try to recreate what you had in your mind... If they didn't really understand the point, you might end up with something like this. <laughs> Anybody seen this before? This is a problem, though, with the checklist mentality of salvation. You might have all the right elements and totally miss the point because there's no real connection. There's no real desire for a relationship with God. God wants a heart that is dedicated to Him. And salvation is so much more than just an outward display or going through a process. It has to involve our heart as well. And I'm not talking about romance. You know, I, this is a romantic dinner, but we're not talking about romance. We're not talking about overly emotionalistic things. In the Hebrew language, the heart is is representing the whole inner self, the will, the intentions, the determination of your, of your, of your direction. It's, and it goes on and on. The whole inner self. God wants all of that from you. He wants your will. He wants your intentions, your pursuits, your determination. He wants all of that. But in terms of application, how do we pursue this? How do we pursue this new heart, this new relationship? You know, if we sense that our faith is sort of mechanical or that we're sort of just going through the motions from day to day or we're checking boxes on a list, how do we move past that and grow into an actual relationship with God? You know, honestly, I don't think it's something we can force. <laughs> it's a relationship. I don't think it's something that we can just obtain by trying harder because it's a change in our heart that needs to happen. I really appreciate what Philippians says in verse uh, in chapter two, verse thirteen. It says, it is, uh, "It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose." This verse reminds us that God is the one who can change your heart. He works in us not only to act in accordance with His purposes, but also to will for it, to desire it. The change, uh, this change will, uh, will, will help us, uh, sorry, what he can do will help us change our desire to be the same things that he desires. So I know it might sound like a cliche to say this, but this is where I think we really need to start with prayer. You know, if we, if we find that we're not really desiring the same things God desires, if we're not really desiring that relationship with God, it really needs to begin with us asking Him to change our heart. He will do that. And further to that, I think that we can also benefit 
from seeking people out in our lives who are on fire for God. People that we can be with, people we can learn from, people who motivate us to pursue that relationship for our own lives. So we've talked about being saved for a new purpose, being saved for a new relationship, but we've also been saved for a new ego, ego. Uh, which is kind of a strange word to use because ego often has negative connotations, right? We talk about someone who might be egotistical or egocentric uh, when we're describing someone who's selfish or, or absorbed with themselves. But ego really by itself just means I, as in myself. And your ego really just refers to your sense of self-esteem or your self-importance. In other words, where do you find your sense of value, your identity, your importance, your sense of yourself? That's your ego. God has saved us from trying to find ourselves in the wrong place. God has saved you and me from trying to find ourselves in the wrong place. And this is a big deal. The words in verse 23 are so powerful. We should no longer look for our sense of self in our wisdom, in our might, in our riches. We have been saved from trying to find value and meaning within ourselves so that we can find true value and true meaning from knowing the one who made us. That's a big, big deal. And, and for some of us, that's a big shift, myself included. And as we've said, you know, the people that Jeremiah was addressing had lost their way. They had come to define themselves based on their own accomplishments, their own possessions, their own intelligence, and they forgot their true identity and their true sense of self, their ego, if you like was supposed to be grounded in their relationship with the God who made them. And I think it's still just so tempting for you and I to do this same thing today. What is your sense of self? Where does it come from? How do you define yourself? That's a sort of a deep question, right? But it's worth considering because Jesus died to save you from defining yourself in the wrong things. And the message of verse 23 helps us with this so much. What you know is not who you are. What you know is not who you are. This is so applicable to us today. You know, we're constantly tempted to define ourselves as someone who has a higher or lower value based on what we know and how we've lived, our wisdom. We might try to identify ourselves uh or try to find our value based on our education. Or maybe we see ourselves as worthy or unworthy as a person because we've made choices in our lives in a certain way. Maybe we think we're pretty wise and we have some things figured out, and that means we're worth more. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being wise and making good choices and having an education. Of course not. But that's not where our source of self should flow from. According to this verse, what you know is not who you are. And secondly, what you accomplish is not who you are. Your accomplishments or your lack of accomplishments, your mistakes or your lack of mistakes, are not what define who you are. These are not the things that you should boast about, is what the Scripture is saying. 
And this is a challenging one for me personally. You know, I was raised to work hard and to produce. Maybe some people can relate to that. And I'm thankful for that in some ways, but a problem can come along with that in that if my sense of self-worth and my identity gets tangled up with my performance, I'm on shaky ground there. My might or my strength or my ability to produce can become the thing where I find my identity. And that's a big problem. Because who am I when I'm not busy? What am I worth when I'm not productive? I know I'm not the only one who struggles with this because I've talked to some of you who have said the same thing to me. What you accomplish is not how God wants you to define yourself, according to verse 23. And finally, what you have is not what you are either. I know this one's applicable to us today too. You know, your house, your possessions, your vacations you take, your money, your posterity and your family, your career, anything that you possess is not where your ego or your sense of self should come from. So if it's not our wisdom, if it's not our accomplishments, if it's not our stuff, our riches, then where should our sense of self be? Please hear this next part. God says, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. This is such a life-changing statement if we can really let it sink in and get our heads around it. Honestly, I'm still working on it. But that's really where I want to go. And, and I know that he can get all of us there if we stick with him. My sense of self-value should not come from the fact that I understand uh, that I have wisdom or, or that I'm good at something or, or maybe that you know I, uh, I have some stuff. That's not where it comes from. My sense of self-value should come from the fact that I understand and know who He is. That I actually know Him and that I walk with Him and that He's walking with me. What a blessing that is. And the danger of finding our sense of self in these other areas of life is that we're going to end up relying on ourselves more than we rely on Him. And, and that's seriously like building your house on the sand. We will fail. We will break down, but He will not. And that's worth a lot when life kicks you down or when you make a big mistake or when someone doesn't like you. You know, there's peace that comes from finding your sense of self in Him rather than only being as good as your last accomplishment or your last failure. Rather than only being as good as your current circumstances or your performance or your bank account balance or, or your current project at work and how that's going. That's not where our sense of self should be. Thank God that He has saved us from that faulty foundation. We have so much more in boasting that we know Him and that we understand Him. Isaiah 26, 4 says, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. He is the rock. And we, when we embrace this new ego, this, this new sense of self that is found in Him, rather than in ourselves, that's when we begin to really appreciate what it says here in Romans 11. I love these words. From Him... 
and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Everything in our lives originates from him. And it's empowered by him. And everything we do can be for his glory. What a rich life that is. This is truly worth boasting about. Being saved from that uh, faulty sense of self that will not last. We've been given a new ego. A new sense of self that comes from truly knowing him. The everlasting rock. What a blessing. So today we've reminded ourselves of why God has saved us. It's important for us to realize that we were saved for a reason. And that wasn't just so we can go to heaven one day when we die. We have been saved from everything that sin has done to destroy who God made us to be. God has saved us so that we can glorify Him and represent Him now and forever. He has saved us for the purpose of our lives that was distorted by sin. He has saved us for the relationship of our lives that was severed by sin. And he has saved us for the sense of self and ego that was corrupted by sin. Knowing that we are saved for something is so important. Because it should cause us to value and pursue the things that God has saved us for. To take hold of that life which Jesus took hold of us for. If you're ready to begin that new life today, or if you've gone off the rails with your life, and you're ready to get it back on track, and you want to talk to somebody about that, please, I'm happy to talk to you about any of that. Thank you for your time this morning.